When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Buying a home can feel like navigating uncharted waters. Redfin agents can help. They'll answer your questions with honest advice so you know exactly what you're getting into. They'll also help you tour as many homes as you want and show you what it takes to make a winning offer. With a Redfin agent on your side, you can sail straight to your dream home. Local expertise from Redfin. That's real estate done right. Tour subject to property and agent availability. Virginia Office Falls Church, VA. 844-759-7732. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. My name is Dave Hanratty, and there will be no encore. Welcome to No Encore. It's the music podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm back in front of a microphone, not in fact my phone, as I was cradled over for the uh, ending of last week's dramatic episode. Here, once again, like he was last week, I had a bit of a moment there, you know? Got, got a bit emotional. Dude, you got very wistful just yeah, before you uttered my name, is it? Before Craig. you uttered those words, Craig Fitzpatrick. Fitzpatrick. <laughs> It's slashing rain outside as well. It's like belting against the window. So I think it's just creating an overall atmosphere. I think I just took a moment to... Uh, it's very dramatic. Drink it all in, you know? You did a dramatic enough afternoon as well. Have you recovered from getting caught in like a, a hailstorm? Whilst, Absolute like, nightmare, like, Helping man. some bin men out, I believe. Absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So I live in the suburbs, you know? Uh, and uh, it's, it, you know, it's very peaceful. Society. 
<laughs> much like much like the japester himself i do in fact live in a society yeah so um real quick the weather's mental today and i was uh it's bins day you know can't believe we're opening the podcast this way but here we go bins day like this little look into our lives i guess some do i feel like most don't but like, <laughs> uh bin two bins go out you know three if you're if you're into the the compostable end of the world which we're not so blue bin full of plastics full of cardboard all that kind of stuff you're a recycling man you know you're trying to save the world and uh ours was overflowing you know it's always a bit of a thing put a rock on there for a while but i'm like oh what if the rock means that the bin men don't touch it then and then we're fucked with this bin for two more weeks so long story short uh whenever long walk got caught in the hail i was like that wasn't great at least that's over for the day seems like a nice enough sunny day opening up and at one stage, you know, I'm kind of coming back. I'm going to go have a shower. So, you know, I've got shorts on, if I can just, you know, let the listener know this. Football you Shower shorts. in your shorts. No, this is before I was going Are to you shower. You never knew, Dave. I put some washing on. So I transferred my clothes, you know, trying, like into a more casual pre-shower Dave. So gotcha. anyway, the thing is, like, if, yeah, it was an action figure, you know, black t-shirt shorts. So <laughs> I'm looking out the window and all of a sudden it was like something out of fucking Silent Hill. It was just like, it's got really dark and crazy fucking hailstorm just comes in and I'm like, that's not great. And then I look out the window and I see the neighbor's blue bin just collapse and fucking give up on life itself. <laughs> Things flying into the air like something out of an anime. I was like, what the hell is going on over here? Is that a Sharknado? And- <laughs> but then I was like, huh, well, I wonder if ours will hold up. And then, nope, it goes and everything just starts flying into the air. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, so I had to like put clothes on, run outside with a black plastic bag. There's a neighbour doing the same thing. And then I'm just like, I'm now I'm now across the street in other neighbours' driveways, picking up like pizza boxes and stuff that isn't mine and trying to like cradle it all together. And I'm like, this looks so dodgy. I'm going to get arrested or something. And just at my <laughs> lowest ebb, the fucking bin truck comes around the corner. And yeah, and then I waited around to like, you know, make sure everything went okay and... You know, I, the, the process didn't repeat itself, essentially. And Oversee yeah. the process for the bin men. But, <laughs> like, they didn't even give me, like, a respect nod. It was just, like, the, it was the worst ten minutes of my life, and I'm never going to leave the house again. Which, a year into a pandemic, I guess I'm finally learning my lessons. So. I mean, this is what you get when you go outside. Leo did warn you, you know? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I, okay. had a, I did have a... a <laughs> Music anecdotes. <laughs> I, I was gonna say I had a positive outdoors experience recently. Oh, I'm delighted it sounds for like you. I'm, I've become a naturist or something. <laughs> go on. Should I tell it? Okay, go on. You so, have so to I, know. What I, the fuck? I, also, like, talk about derailing the show from, from like <laughs> Jesus. Okay, go on, go on, go on, go on. It was a big deal. I, I bettered my um, new nemesis, who is um, very small but highly ferocious. It's this like terrier dog rice that like lives at the bottom of my road. And the end of one of my kind of typical running routes now is like I kind of finished down by the river, down by the river. As I'm walking back up towards like civilization, I have to walk past him just when I'm like all out of puff. And he's like a really yappy twerp. Like if he he gets near enough where he, it kind of gives you pause and you're like, is it going to be go time? So recently I was wandering up that trail. I was kind of bracing myself. I was completely just done for and I see him on the grass verge just emerging over this hill right but something kind of different about him <laughs> he looked very like self-conscious and like hesitant and I realised like he's in the middle of using like nature's WC <laughs> like going to the toilet 
And he gave me this look of like, well, this is highly embarrassing. And he was kind of like stuck. <laughs> Couldn't go for me. We just maintained eye contact as he went to the, the bathroom as I passed him by. And I kind of like smiled and just kept moving. That was it. I, I committed to the stare. I stared him out of it. He didn't make a sound. I hope he remembers that. I hope he recalls my kindness because I could have done him in like. I can go one better. I was in the shop the other day and there was a, a, a maskless child who was way too close for comfort. And I just had enough, Craig. And I turned around to this five-year-old boy and I said... Struck the child. No, no, I did not. But I just said, back off, yeah? And I was like, what has it come to? What has the world itself come to? As you can tell, Craig and I are cracking the fuck up. So if somehow you're still with us on this week's episode of No Encore, we will be we will be talking about music. It's the top five sellout moments uh, inspired by the fact that we'll be reviewing the new Kings of Leon album. I guess you could say they inspired us. And if you want to sell out as well and support this show, you can do so on patreon.com slash no encore. I promise we'll never have an intro as laboured as this ever again if we get five new patrons in the next week. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> let's just let's just set goals, you know? Um, cool. Right. What else? There's a brand new episode of No Popcorn coming soon. Monday or Tuesday? One of those days. I, I, I'm, I'm really... I'm discombobulated, guys. New episode of No Popcorn. Very, very enjoyable. Velvet Goldmine. Not so enjoyable. But the episode's good. Coming in the next few days. Craig, uh, news. Adam? Let's get into it. It's the news. <laughs> You heard about the good news? Smooth as silk. Okay, right. Pretty much just as smooth was the Irish Times this Monday when they put out an article about Electric Picnic. And essentially it prompted Electric Picnic to get involved themselves. I'll take you through it now. Uh, Essentially, this story was about, you know, the possibility of the festival happening, where we're at, how optimistic the organisers are. The kind of article you're going to get at least once every two, if not three weeks now, for until they cancel it, essentially. So... Long story short, um, Electric Picnic said on Twitter after this article was out, quote, an article has appeared in the Irish Times this morning that makes statements on Melvin Benn's behalf and appears as if one of the event organisers is speaking on behalf of Electric Picnic. The person being interviewed is not one of the organisers and his points are his points. Can I just say I love that expression? His points are his points. Weird. (laughs) I kind of understand what they mean, but also what the hell? We have asked for this article to be taken down, and then the third tweet said, The Electric Picnic team remain hopeful that the vaccination rollout will be complete in sufficient time to allow the festival to go ahead, obviously, but remain in government hands for that. Uh, Irish Times article was subsequently rewritten. The truth is, it wasn't all that red hot. It was more like, here's some quotes from people who are close to it. Melvin Benn's name was mentioned. He, of course, is a Festival Republic guy who infamously said a year ago that, you know, coronavirus wouldn't go beyond June. Yeah, Yeah, and all you buggers will have something else to write about, etc., which did not age well. but yeah, essentially, Irish Times just kind of rewrote their article. It's more the fact that Electric Picnic and putting out those tweets drew more attention to a fairly innocuous kind of, you know, here's some talking heads on the festival type thing. But I guess they felt that they were, there was more hardline claims being made than weren't being made. It was all very confusing. The point is, as it stands, Electric Picnic is going ahead. But of course, as they keenly point out, it depends on vaccinations and a process that Ireland is currently lagging behind on. I'll tie this in, though, to a story that kind of emerged uh, close of podcast business last week. In other 
Melvin Ben should probably stop doing media news. <laughs> Reading Borough Council has said that nothing has been agreed in regards to the Reading Festival taking place this summer, which I think could be sold out at this point. It yeah. is. It's sold, out. It's sold <laughs> like hotcakes. Incredible. Uh, yeah, so essentially, you you will recall that Leeds and Reading, Reading and Leeds, have been very bullishly saying, we're going ahead, it's going to be great. But the Reading Council themselves are like, well, uh, no, we, we, we haven't given this the green light at all. Um, there's a quote here from a guy involved who says, what's become apparent from comments on social media, where else, and people contacting the council, is that some people are under the impression that the council has approved Reading Festival. That is not the case. Um, it is our intention for it to happen, but lots to talk about, essentially. Now, the interesting thing about this is, like I say, so Melvin Ben was apparently misquoted in the Irish Times article about Electric Picnic on Monday. It was more like sources to him, supposedly. Yeah. Although I love the idea of somebody ringing up the office and then being like, yeah, why not? I'm Melvin Ben, let's do it. Um, I should say, you know, you know, tough at the top, you know, like difficult job to have, I would imagine, especially in this moment. But I got to give him credit, man. Like this is the world's most optimistic businessman. He just won't stop. Um, there's an amazing quote that I somehow missed uh, back in January, right? Uh, that he gave about Reading and Leeds. And he said, if everyone over the age of 60 or definitely the age of 50 is vaccinated by the end of May, then Jesus, there should be no stopping this. <laughs> and then he says, imagine what fun it's going to be. It's going to be bloody awesome, isn't it? Rain or shine, being out in that field with thousands of people, wherever it is, watching any band or your favourite band. I just can't wait. It's mouthwatering just to think about. So fair play to him. He, he won't give up on this. His quotes are afterward just garbled nonsense as he got lost in the raptures. He's really coming over like a kind of Michael O'Leary of the fields, isn't he? Which is just, yeah, he loves an old quote. Um, oh, he's a machine quotes, for it, so, yeah. Of course. I mean, but I will Redding say... Thing is, the Reading thing is interesting because obviously, like, you know, sold out. Uh, those tickets were flying off the shelves like vaccines and it might not happen. I do think it is kind of, it's common practice for those licenses to be given out extremely close to festivals, right? Like, I think over the years, that is a thing people wouldn't expect, but it can be like... Uh, you know, an event can be going full steam ahead, tickets sold, they're almost setting up and then they get the permit because just it can take ages to get them locked in. But yeah, in these uncertain times, I also like the fact Le- Leeds um, Council haven't said anything. They're just like, of course, it's going ahead. They're far more bullish. They're like Marco Bielsa or something. They're just like, yeah, yeah, it's all good. Let's do it. Tough week for fans of a certain kind of musical stripe, though, as well, of course. Um, And I think, of course, uh, of our original OG Sonic Architect, the wonderful Eve Murray, the queen of everything, the dame of Drogheda, and a big fan of Mumford & Sons. And I reached out to Eve this week to get her reaction to this next story, Craig, uh, about how Winston Marshall, member of Mumford & Sons, went online and uh, put up lots of praise for a seemingly right-wing publication, a book, by Andy Ingo, and essentially he was like, brave work, this is great. A book all about how Antifa are, are the enemy, essentially. Uh, so that drew some fire quite quickly. I asked Eve on her thoughts. She said I can quote her on this. Jesus Christ, he should just stick to playing the banjo. So uh, what's the latest on this one, Craig? And is this the Mumford & Son that you interviewed before? This is not the Mumford & Son I interviewed, thankfully. Um, I can't even remember the name of the guy I interviewed, but it wasn't him. Do you know all the names off the top of your head? They are a bit like the Fab Four, aren't they? They're I, just household names, right? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't actually. So I do remember you interviewing one of them and not going very well, though. Was he promoting some new nightclub night or something? And you were like, this guy is so boring, he gave me nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, he was probably not the world's most boring bloke, but it was a thing of like, do not ask about Mumford and Sons. Just talk about this club night. <laughs> like, what? This has got nothing to do with anything whatsoever. So yeah, it was 20 minutes of my life that I'm never getting back. Uh, the update on this one is uh, a few days on, Marshall's released a statement. He says he's taking time away from Mumford and Sons. <laughs> Start a club night. No, I don't know. <laughs> he said, um, over the past few days, I've come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. I've offended not only a lot of people I don't know but also those closest to me including my bandmates and for that I am truly sorry he continued as a result of my actions I'm taking time away from the band to examine my blind spots for now please know that I realise how my endorsements have the potential to be viewed as approvals of hateful divisive behaviour I apologise as this was not at all my intention that's a pretty profuse uh, apology I guess but the question is like what did he think he was reading (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's got kind of legalese all over it. It also signals that the band were like, all right, mate, (laughs) you're you're on leave for a long time and we need to distance ourselves and move quickly. And it seems kind of ruthless, doesn't it? Yeah, but that's that's the tough, you know, gangster-esque world of Mumford and Sons, really. Yeah, Yeah, mainstream folk. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, I haven't read this book, obviously, (laughs) because I try not to read this kind of thing. Actually, I've got a copy here, Dave, and I can that now. No, I do not. Actually, Marshall makes some uh, sophisticated points. Uh, yeah, the best thing about this is like his his kind of climb down, and then seeing all the quote tweets from all the like the fucking horrible right wingers being like, "What are you doing, apologizing, man?" You know, like, "Oh, you've been you've been gotten to," and it's just like, nah. But it was just a bizarre story. I was like, I think Richie McCormick said it best uh, when he said like, "Ah, Mumford and Sons is always the ones that you absolutely expected to be." Um, but yeah, sad yeah, day. It's I mean, the like. Tweet. They've given us fantastic music for a long time, and I, I for one, am very upset that I have to, I have to just stop listening to all those great tunes now. You know, it's going to be difficult for me and for lots of fans to get beyond this. How are you feeling about it, man? I know you're also like me. I know you're a huge fan of this band. They've they've kind of changed your 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 thought process on on life itself. Really, it goes beyond the music for you. I know. <laughs> I remember reviewing Mumford and Sons when they played the Olympia uh, a long time ago now and it was maybe the worst gig I've ever been to in my entire life it was dreadful and not really from a, like a technical point of view but I just my skin was crawling for the duration particularly when I don't know if they still do it because they kind of went like very mainstream indie rock or like polished for a while didn't they but back then they were still doing their thing where like last third of the show they'd all like huddle around a microphone right up close to the audience couldn't do that now and just kind of like it becomes a kind of a bit of a sesh do you know what I mean I think I wrote like trying to sell this kind of folk music to the Irish is like trying to sell coal to Newcastle but instead of a lump of coal it's just like a lump of shit <laughs> and it got published I can't believe that got was. published I'm actually yeah. amazed that got published what the <laughs> hell in Hot Press Magazine of all places Jesus Christ um, okay so yeah also happening this week uh, Corey Taylor of Slipknot is trying to defy the pandemic by doing a socially distant solo tour in celebration of his album from last year which was not very good um, but it's interesting like he's kind of talking about the whole idea of like trying to get crews back on the road and trying to do it safely and all that kind of stuff I guess leaning into the business model of rock but someone else who has cited the business model of rock is of course our old friend Gene Simmons of Kiss fame uh, a band who may or may not appear later on in the sellouts corner I don't know but ultimately <laughs> we, need a, we need a fucking Kiss sting at this point I think right I'll have a route around but yeah just get some, yeah, some kind of wailing guitar and a cash register sound, I think, will probably do the job. But uh, Gene Simmons made some points this week. He spoke to Consequence of Sound and said that, like, bands are dying, rock is dead. So echoing Adam Levine from Maroon 5's comments from last week. But maybe, 
maybe he's got more to say. He says, young folks, that kid living in his mom's basement decided one day that he didn't want to pay for music. He wanted to download and file share. Still talking about Napster. <laughs> that's what killed the chances for the next generation of great bands. The fact that music was for free. New bands don't have a chance. It's like flowers. People water them and make sure there's enough sun and all that stuff. As soon as you take your eyes off and you don't water the flowers, they will die. And people wonder why there aren't beautiful flowers. Well, because you don't water them. You get what you pay for. So nowadays, if you download a song, the artist will get one hundredth of one cent. Even Spotify, the artist sees very little of that. So you get what you pay for. Uh, an unwieldy quote in which I lapsed into my draw version of myself a couple of times there. I think in particular the I word enjoyed it. Wow, really got me for a second. So I do it's apologize. Like the essence of Gene. What can I say? Um, yeah, so I, you know, does he have a point? Is it yeah, is it I mean, better he's, to be he's a solo kind of 100% artist these days? Right. <laughs> like it it's upsetting. We kind of talked about this with the Adam Levine thing where we said, you know, it might just come down to the practicalities of like the overheads of having a lot of members in the group and solo artists can kind of flourish and just be, obviously, you know, the business model is Ed Sheeran who can just have have like loop pedals and do everything himself in big, like massive stadiums. Maybe have a lighting guy and he's good to go with his acoustic. He's basically busking and making absolute dollar. So, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe that's the model. Um, interesting that maybe the man responsible for all of this piracy has sadly passed away at the age of 94, Lou Ottens, the Dutch inventor of the cassette tape, which I guess, you know, is when people first started being able to pirate radio, start carrying music around in their pocket. It all goes back to him. But um, yeah, sad news that he passed away. Just as it's kind of good that he got to see like the cassette tape have its weird hipster revival. I'm sure that was some comfort to him in his final year. So I reckon I've got a couple of those. Yeah, I've got a, as I look over my shoulder here, I've got Denise Childers Go Bravely. It's a mixtape, so I've got the cassette tape. I've got um for those that. I for those I love uh, mixtape as well cassette tape thing. <laughs> yeah, what, what are you taking I then? Fatboy Slim's Praise <laughs> You single. <laughs> <laughs> I just found it a while ago from, I guess, 2000? No, 1998. This must have been one of the first cassettes I bought. Wow, the same and year. You, and it's got the Rockefeller Skank on the back of it. Same year or the year before, I bought New Radicals' only album, maybe even Brainwashed 2, on cassette tape. So yeah, I've had my own kind of version with it as well. Uh, and I recall when I was very young, I remember getting a Walkman for Christmas. And I remember like freaking out and having a hysterical fit about that when I was like six or something, because I guess I wanted toys. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely ashamed of that memory. I think about it every now and then. And I'm like, first of all, terrible reaction, six years of age or not. And second of all, dude, you went on to become a music journalist. This should have been like a fucking, like, like I don't know, like almost famous moment for you. But no, I just completely made a show of myself. So if I could go back, you know, and fix that, I would. Quantum Leap style. Is that the one thing you would go back and fix? <laughs> yeah. Some people would go back in time and kill Hitler. I would go back in time and I would, like, make sure I had a much more graceful reaction to a thoughtful present when I was about six years of age. <laughs> anyway, oh, we're all very hard on oh, ourselves. Yeah. And, like, yeah, shout out to Lee Waltons. I, I I put that in the running order to pay tribute to, you know, a hero of music, but Craig... I ruined it. Craig decided he was an agitator. Him into but, a villain. but Craig, what would he think about this thing that we're all talking about now? <laughs> NFT. What's that? Oh, non-fungible tokens, Dave. Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm also glad I put this in the running order and you were like, you handle this story, dude. It's a very long story. I'm scrolling through my phone here and like, this is an essay that I'm very much like, yeah, I'll, I'll just let Craig break this one down for me and for the listener. Yeah, so I guess um, this is a bit relevant because it ties into our album of the week. Uh, Kings Leon's new record is being released digitally um, in NFT um, 
various versions. Um, Grimes has made like absolute bank off this recently as well. She's made six million quid from selling like kind of digital art, various things. And yeah, everyone's talking about it, dude. I also kind of like the way that it sounds non-fungible. It's kind of great. But basically what it is, is a kind of one of a kind virtual asset. So essentially it's like collecting like baseball cards, but it's digital. There's no tangible thing and it can be any kind of art. And uh, Jack Dorsey recently put up his first tweet for sale as um, an NFT. And I don't really know what that means, but it basically is a recreation of that tweet but with a clearly imprinted um, blockchain code that you can trace back and can't be copied. And once you pass it from one person to the other, um, it's theirs. They can't, like, it's completely unique. And I think what this comes down to ultimately is, like, getting bragging rights for having stuff. Because, like, you know, if it's a piece of artwork and you've got this NFT version of it, people can still just, like, right-click and save as and they've got the imagery there. All you've got is, like, a piece of code that says you were the first person to purchase it. Um, so it's like a weird kind of bragging rights thing. It's kind of for rare items. The interesting thing with Kings of Leon being, I think, the first band or the first act to go this route in terms of their album is they have a few packages. They have stuff like um, special version of the album, enhanced media, which is like moving album covers and stuff. And a few kind of like front row seats and like concert opportunities and things and commissioned audiovisual art. But basically, it's very, very standard digital stuff you would get already. And the prices are extreme. And it seems to be just for the sake of being like the person that says, oh, this was the first album and I've got one of the first copies and you can see the serial number here and I'm great. And then hopefully people get caught up in the hype enough that they the value keeps rising and you can make some book off it later on. But it's very, very weird. I don't quite understand it, but it seems to be the future, Dave. One for the... Uh, <laughs> the future in general. Weird and I don't understand it. One for the Martin Shrekleys of the world, perhaps. I don't know. I kind of feel like I, like again, like like Bitcoin or whatever. Like it's just I don't understand this kind of stuff. I never will. My brain isn't cut out for it. Did you see that story recently, by the way, in the Guardian or wherever it was? I saw it. It was like some guy who had X amount of Bitcoin back in two thousand and nine or something. It's now yeah. worth like a million or perhaps a lot more than that. And he has one guess left at his password. And then if he doesn't guess it after nine attempts already. And he's enlisted like the world's never, greatest hackers to try and figure it <laughs> he'll out. He'll never get the money. I was like, for fuck's it's sake. incredible. That's like a screenplay for fucking sure. 100%. Um, yeah, it's going to be a movie without question. But it seems like, yeah, he's had he's had a lot of people working on it and even like the world's greatest minds aren't quite sure it will work. So he's stuck in this position of like, I can't really do it. Can I? I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. I'm getting well, nervous just thinking about it. Yeah, I'm going to continue my stick my head in the sand, new technology scare me thing. Like, like I don't have Revolut. I'm, I, you're never going to find me on Snapchat or TikTok. You know, new things? Nah. Nah, man. I've got my Zoom recorder. I've got my microphone. I've got my beat up MacBook. And that's all, that's all I need, really. But uh, I did say to you, I was like, great story. I was like, perfect placement because we're going to go straight from this smoothly into the Kings of Leon album. But you decided to fuck up the new section. You said there's a method to your madness. There's a couple more stories. Tie them all together, pal. 
Yeah, so it was basically the lure of Tidal. It's got me again. <laughs> it's got me again. And Jay-Z has finally forsaken me. And all the people he kind of... Oh, this is very, a very cynical intro to this story because he's still on the board of Tidal. But he is sold out. He sold his controlling stake in Tidal to Square, which is the mobile payments firm uh, run by Jack Dorsey, the aforementioned. There's a link. There's links all over the place, dude. This is very smooth. And <laughs> the deal is worth nearly $300 million. I think he spent something like $60 million for it initially. Um, they still have a stake in it, but uh, yeah, and it means like the likes of, you'll remember that like there was a load of kind of artists that were also co-owners. That was the whole thing of like it was empowering artists. You had Beyonce, uh, of course, Coldplay, Daft Punk, Madonna, Rihanna. They all had stakes. Jack White, I think as well. They all did that weird p- press conference where they seemed like a, a kind of a galactic version of the UN where they were just giving weird sound bites about like, this is the future of music. Um, and I'm guessing they're going to make huge bank on this. Uh, but it's just interesting that he's kind of surrendered control of this to Jack Dorsey, considering the whole platform was like, no, this is 100% artist owned. We're going to be directing what what's going on. I mean, benefit of the doubt, maybe thinks Jack Dorsey has a plan that's going to improve things. Twitter aren't the worst company in the world, maybe comparatively speaking, like they're not an Amazon. They're not a kind of a Google or an Apple that's going to put the squeeze on people, you would imagine. Um, but yeah, like it's just, he kind of started tweeting again, which he rarely does. Like the last time he tweeted was about Kanye West clarifying some lyrics um, about like two or three years ago. And he had a series of tweets where he's just like talking about how this is about more than just streaming music. And it's still going to be a platform that supports artists. And Jack Dorsey's one of the greatest minds of our times. And he's going to, you know, blah, 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 endless possibilities. I've made huge money. He's a smart dude. Like, but yeah, he made his money. He got out and I still have the title headaches. I've unsubscribed, by the way. That should be made very clear. But I did spend, for new listeners, about a year subscribed to title on able to unsubscribe because of the labyrinthine (laughs) unsubscription process and just forgetting every month and then realizing and yeah probably spent about 100 quid on that sucker from title aficionado to twitter apologist what have you become craig fitzpatrick but you did mention kanye west there which of course is as good a reason as any to play our favorite sting that we sometimes crowbar into the news section give us that adam Shut up, Craig on Kanye. Never gets old. Love it so much. It's great. Oh yeah, I keep forgetting. It just keeps running. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so professional. So, so, so high what, the what a week. has been talking. <laughs> um, he's collaborated with Kanye quite a bit and he's just given some updates on um, the fact that Kanye is apparently back in the studio. Um, he promised that Donda would be released last summer. Do you remember that one? That was like, Donda was along with the likes of Swish. Um, so help me God, so many albums we didn't quite get. Um, but he's back at it, apparently. Sci-Hi's kind of always talking about how they're, you know, working on stuff and over-promising a little bit, so pinch of salt with this. Um, but yeah, he says, you know, he's faring well, he's in good spirits. Um, obviously, you know, with the divorce and stuff, that backbeat's still going, man. <laughs> I'm trying to get serious. <laughs> just, just... It's you do meditation. Surely this is helping you. If anything, you're a Zen guy. 
<laughs> I don't do a meditation to a Yeezus back feet. Maybe well, I should start. Sounds like you're doing it all wrong, Chief. Like, ultimately... He's just a human being, Sai said. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting through it. <laughs> delighted to hear that and delighted to hear he's um, back to work as well. And hopefully it's more so than us getting, like, the end product. Hopefully it's... Um, a kind of holistic thing for him hopefully it's restorative and yeah he said before you know he always goes back to music when he needs to kind of focus his mind and yeah hopefully that's doing it for him would love some new material for sure but that's the Kanye update yeah and thank you very much for that I retain faith in Kanye I hope he can make another great album as do I I think he will and I hope that happens and he can take as long as he's never let us down before (laughs) (laughs) he can take as long as he wants right uh, that's the end of the news for this week and before we get on to our album which I know we're all dying to hear what we thought of the new Kings of Leon record it is of course customary at this point that we throw to a plug for the Headstuff Podcast Network and here's a brand new show this is What Would You Do If the podcast to answer all of your What Would You Do If questions it's Callum and Jess here and every week we look at how we'd handle different situations before finding out what you should do if you're in them so far we've looked at what would you do if you saw someone stealing a bear attacked you the baby started choking you were stuck in the lift you can hear those episodes and loads more on Headstuff podcast.com with a new one every monday and what would you do listener if you were forced to listen to the eighth kings of leon album and by extension if you're me (laughs) a lot of their singles throughout the week it's kings of leon the album is called when you see yourself and this song is called the bandit The Bandit, very much a case of a gang of young highwaymen stealing the hearts and minds of many back in the early aughts. To expand on that premise, Craig Fitzpatrick. Yeah, Kings of Leon, um, they're the family follower, Caleb, Jared and Nathan are brothers and then cousin Matthew on guitar. <laughs> they're named for their granddad, I believe, um, sons and a nephew of like a wayward travelling minister. Um, which was all part of the mythology when they first arrived. And they arrived as like the Southern Fried Strokes, they used to always be called. They were like the Nashville wing of like the new rock revolution, um, straight out of the kind of hairy 70s as well, to the point where like the Molly's Chamber video, I was like, is this a kind of parody thing? Is that Ashton Kutcher in like a fake moustache and like a hairdo? The tunes are pretty good though. I can get on board with the bell bottoms and um, yeah, they had a kind of weird gruff eccentricity at the start, which was quite beguiling. Then they kind of became um, maybe the American wing of Landfill Indie, which we spoke about quite a bit on this show before. Um, You know, Johnny Burrell and the Stetson maybe. I think they've succeeded where he failed in terms of they've never really fallen off um, in a kind of arena, arena or like stadium level. They maybe occupy the same space as uh, Killers maybe now without the Vegas showmanship. Um, but I guess, Dave, maybe our generation is a bit split, right? So you've got the people that are like, unironically, you know, they hear Sex on Fire or Use Somebody and it's in their playlist alongside like Living on a Prayer and they have like Kings of Leon as like their rock band from back in the day, like 10 years ago. And then the rest of us who are kind of musos kind of roofly going, 
they were so goddamn good, man. Um, and I still believe that. Like, they were this exciting family bands. They were crunchy. They were kind of uncouth. They were energetic players. They ultimately smoothed out the edges um, as success beckoned. I mean, they always kind of had the potential to go pop because the songs were uniformly immediate, infectious. They had genuine, youthful abandon, as you kind of said there, on youth and young manhood. Aha, shake heartbreak. They added, you know, um, complexity. They nailed their kind of instrumental um, chemistry as well. Brilliant, intertwining stuff. I'll even stand behind the third album. It's a bit bloated, but I think it's a genuinely great record, even as they started experimenting with kind of widescreen sounds. But we're on album eight now, and oh boy, like... Um, there's a reason we're kind of semi-tongue-in-cheek doing top five sellouts Uh, it was my suggestion and I did you were asking you know what do these sellout moments kind of mean Um, how would you kind of hone in on them Um, if it wasn't say Sex on Fire and I said I don't think it really was Sex on Fire maybe I think they stumbled into that and like Caleb was on Painkillers or something he wrote this weird song and the label were like no that works that works also on that album is You Somebody and you know with it's big John Hughes oh whoa and it's like they're just aiming for the back rows quite cynical there's a couple of things I think that put them on this path, right? That I remember. I remember seeing it happen as a fan of the band as well, right? Like as a as a reader of Q magazine, when the third album came out, Paul Reese was the editor at the time, and he was also the man that gave um, Razorlight's second album a five star review. That's when I knew the <laughs> magazine was done. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his tone in that review and the review of Because of the Times, and then Only by the Night was very similar. He was kind of like going, you know, they're marked out for superstardom. They're following the YouTube blueprint, and like here are like the three songs that are going to make them megastars. And here's why it's you know super catchy. And like here's why he almost went through this like it's like a powerpoint presentation of why they were going to become a big important band which was weirdly cynical and didn't really sit right with me at the time and then it seemed like the band read that review and were like oh he's told us exactly what we should do for her career from this point it also didn't help that around i think 2005 they went on the road with you two and bono gave like his infamous kind of you know advice chat and was in their ears and that's even before you get into the suits and if you look at the number rise of, you know, the sales of their album, I'm just doing it this week, and it's kind of crazy because they had this very steady, old-fashioned descent, right, where they sold like 200,000 of the first album, half a mil of the second, nearly a mil of the third when they were, this is like in the UK, when they were massive. And then you hit Only By The Night and they're selling 3 million copies in the UK. They're selling like at least 2 million in the US where they were kind of non-entities previously. And... They hit the big time and that was the blueprint and everything since then has kind of been a mix between watered down recreations of what was working for them then with some occasional kind of interesting oddities and like the occasional great hook but like diminishing returns I would say. We reviewed Walls which was the last album on this podcast. Did we? Um, <laughs> like I've, I've, I forgot even writing one of our a first review. Ones. I wrote a review of that for Drown Sound and I forgot doing even that. Jesus. Dean Dean Van Wynn was on the podcast that time. I remember it distinctly because I felt a bit cornered as like maybe the sole fan of the band and like it wasn't a good album. And I think Dean in particular, because, you know, hip hop is more of his, you know, personal fiefdom. He was, he seemed personally affronted at how many like alt-rock cliches there were in the record <laughs> and clearly still hurt by Sex on Fire, which is fair enough. Um, I did feel as we're going, going through that album that like my kind of logical case for their artistic merit of what like increasingly felt like a, a totally different early band was getting lost in like the, the kind of narcissism of minor differences. I was like starting to doubt myself. I was like, were they really all that good? 
but it's true like uh, like i was reading a bit um this week and ed o'brien of radiohead fame said in 2007 that they were the greatest band in the world just as like radiohead were releasing in rainbow so like they had cachet they were doing inventive stuff but now 2021 when you see yourself um their second record with marcus stravs who's won grammys for mumford and sons <laughs> and coldplay <laughs> and arcade fire albums and like florence and the machine um the process for this started in 2019 and they've been sitting on it for a year i actually listened to their zane low interview this week as well just to see what was going on with the boys how'd that go and uh yeah it was a zane low interview where you know they they came across very well but even when they said something that was like quite interesting and like them doubting their own progress or where they're standing in the world zane would butt in with like no guys we are we like we love everything you do and like you know blah 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 don't change a thing you guys are the biggest rock band in the entire world yeah same as that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. yeah He was talking about how, you know, them sitting on the record, it must have been amazing to have a kind of year of perspective on it and reflect and enjoy it as a fan and all this kind of stuff that doesn't really mean a huge amount. And a couple of the members admitted that they didn't go back and listen to it for ages because they were afraid they'd hate it, which is kind of understandable and, and like endearing, right? Um, but they said that when they did, you know, presumably when the team and the label were like, all right, we're now entering a window where we can start maximizing profits. Go back to listen to our record because we're hitting the road soon and blah, blah, blah. Now, let me tell you about like non-fungible token technology. They said they were relieved that they really liked it. And Caleb was saying that, you know, they could have gone back and changed it, but they were proud of what they did. Wouldn't change a thing. So, Dave, would you? <laughs> no, I, I certainly wouldn't change a thing about, about that introduction, which I think could be your longest ever, which is fascinating. I, 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 <laughs> didn't, one of those I didn't know it would take the eighth Kings of Leon album to really like, get you onto a... I have a, a tortured relationship with this band as well. A you TED know. talk. Well, I, I, in fairness, I, I think I may not have appreciated this fully. I'm very fascinated by this kind of relationship that you have, which is, it's great though, right? I mean, like, like I think having that kind of conflicted relationship yields uh, an interesting perspective. And as a matter of fact, speaking of perspective, I ran a Twitter poll there a couple of days ago, and I just wrote Kings of Leon, followed by four options. And my four options were great band, they're all right even now, once good, now terrible, and always awful. And the winner, 240 people voted, thank you, uh, with 52.5% of the vote was once good, now terrible. So there does seem to be a general kind of perception of like, what promise they once had has long been squandered as they settled into this very kind of commercial beast, as you've said yourself. But how mm. alive and how interested is the beast? Um... So I did a um, hilarious kind of like John Peel-esque thing with this on Saturday when I listened to the album in full. I threw it on again straight away. And it wasn't even, <laughs> it wasn't even a case of, oh man, I'm enjoying this so much. It was more like this passed the Craig Fitzpatrick five listen test fairly easily over the course of the week. I'd say I listened to it about 10 times. Um, however, it's, it's, it's not a good album. I mean, I should note that like the first, the best thing you can say here is it's no disaster. I don't think they embarrass themselves. I think there are some good songs on here. Um, like the first track, When You See Yourself, Are You Far Away? First of all, like even like title wise, I was like, that sounds like contemplative and nice and interesting. And it's a good song. Uh, like the single, The Bandit, is kind of what you expect from a Kings of Leon single. They got a song on here halfway through called Golden Restless Age, which I like yes. quite a bit. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, like it's the best song on here, I think, by by by, by, by quite some distance. Uh, it almost strays into like Wolf Parade territory at times. There's just something kind of for them at this stage of their career, like a bit more experimental experimental than i was expecting um you know it's got breadth to it you know it's got like a kind of a 
like adventurous nature. But then unfortunately, like two songs later, you got a song called Supermarket where he just keeps saying, I'm going nowhere. And I'm like, I would have lost that one, pal. Um, I, I, I think that this is okay. You know, I think it's okay. But like, it's bland and it is commercial and it has that Marcus Drives production kind of that you would expect. And it just does feel like the homogenous kind of thing that they have settled into over the last few years. And ultimately, you know, I, I, I was never that on board i was surrounded by people when those first two albums were out who were like this is the best band of all time and i was i was like i don't quite get it steady on (laughs) (laughs) i was like the book it's all right Uh, i think you know you know classic dave handerty thing here but like you get it you can get a decent greatest hits out of these guys 10 tracker i suppose they got some songs i do like like you know crawl and closer and whatever obviously think sex and fire is horrific and you somebody is just you know depressing um but i don't know i mean like like what are they anymore like what like like the pitchfork this week their review was pretty good they kind of made the point that ultimately um if if the kings of leon of 2003 2004 heard this album not only would they not want to hear this album, they probably wouldn't, you know, want to make music like this. You know, it's very much, it seems yeah. kind of anathema to what they were when they began, which, you know, fair enough. I mean, like time changes us all. It defeats us all, Craig. But um, from your point of view, as this conflicted fan, did you enjoy this album? Um, There was highlights for sure. I was probably in the same boat as you. I think the first thing I had to get past was like, what I thought was a pr- big obstruction to the listening experience for me and for my copious listens was I thought the mix was like pretty horrendous. Caleb's kind of ears. buried, isn't he? Vocally, like he's, he's really buried. Yeah, I don't know if it's like um uh, like a Marcus Strav's production problem or something a little later in the process. Um, like if Adam had a mic, he might be able to let us in a, a little bit about like how that kind of works. It might be later in the process, but yeah, it seems like the decision was made to bury Caleb slightly um, and he feels like defanged. It kind of puts a huge dampener on things. There's moments on the record where I think they feel kind of vital and youthful again um, but there's that extra kind of oomph just missing and yeah, the vocals sound miles away at times and they've had a kind of reverb problem for years where, you know, not every song needs to sound like it's been played in like an empty arena, lads, kind of. So it's coupled with, you know, guitars again being a bit downplayed like Matthew sounds really enthralled to his synths here, which is grand, which is fine. Um, there's some kind of gorgeous, lush sounds here and occasionally great, I think, atmosphere building, but not much in terms of personality or bite or, you know, the intricacy they once had. I'm like not one of those fans that is hung up on, you know, them making guitar music. I'm just not. Um, I just want them to do interesting, inspired, um, creative stuff. Is that too much to ask? But this is not really a return to form. It's too long. Um, oh it's way too long yeah it's 51 minutes i think yeah and it feels it you know once you're over the kind of the golden restless age um highlight time in disguise is pretty weary supermarket as you said feels like a closer and you've still got three tracks to go um but i did think the first trio were really promising um along with golden restless age they were trying things as you said um i always love jared's bass lines Uh, i think they're low-key kind of their calling card um, I'd almost, you know, you know, you can go on YouTube and hear Stadium Arcadium, but it's just John Frusciante's guitar parts, which totally works for a lot of people that, you know, I guess don't want to hear Slap Bass or Anthony Kiedis. Um, I could probably take a YouTube upload of just the bass lines because I think they're great. But when you're talking about just like, oh, the bass lines are great. Um, yeah, Golden Restless Age is the highlight. 
because they kind of they do experiment a bit there's a weird kind of drakean calypso drum machine thing but then also like brass since like it's the cars or something like kind of u2 mid 80s it's like them leaning fully into aor which works i think but yeah i don't know if their heart's really in it like it, from watching that zane low interview i think it told me quite a bit to be honest um because like there was a moment where they were talking about that album title and they do this thing where they've always stuck rigidly to having like it be five syllables which is just a weird kind of i don't know if it's a good luck charm or a weird mythology thing to them i've kind of a working theory that you could like rank or chart how they developed and what went wrong by the album titles kind of thing <laughs> do you know what i mean you can kind of go okay they're really losing their way around come around sundown it's just like really hacky and blah 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 but anyway when we're talking about like when you see yourself where i came from and zane was doing this thing of like caleb i'm turning to you here and like it's clearly you know <laughs> packed full of meaning and obviously you know time to reflect and the whole covid narrative and blah 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 and then Caleb kind of goes, he demurred a bit and he was saying, that was just kind of like that phrase. It was just like a tag I sang at the end of a song when we were recording. It was just a throwaway thing. And then the band were like, no, that kind of fits with what we're doing and we like it. It works really well. And it's like five syllables. So he's like, okay. But it was interesting, like the way he answered that question, because you think of him as being like, he's obviously, you know, the head honcho in the band, but he's always felt like a reluctant star. He's a sensitive kind of soul. And he talks as well about like Marcus Draves being like a hard taskmaster and they were like sharing songs via email. And his responses would be kind of inscrutable. So Caleb would be like, I had this song thing that I wrote. I thought it was like, thought the song was like in a good place and I'd email it to him and he'd just email back like, um, yeah, I've heard that. And I'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? He just sounds tortured by like what he should be doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think he probably listens to people a bit too much and maybe the team and maybe the label. And he's a talented dude. I think they have a lot of chemistry. They're not for me like a Foo Fighters where I'm like, this well is run dry. Um, If they ever do anything interesting again, it's because Dave Grohl somehow conjured up an interesting song he's written. Like, the band adds nothing. I think, actually, they have a lot of chemistry and they could do weird stuff. There is, like, an 8 or 9 out of 10 album in there somewhere. But they've just... When they crossed over into becoming a big band, I think Caleb thought, okay, I have to, like, say something, you know? I have to say something big. And it just became, lyrically, musically grand gestures that are just empty whereas the early stuff was them like not really knowing what they're doing just kind of like mumbling incoherently talking about weird stuff of their like kind of very odd childhood naively and it's seeming on the surface back then kind of like throw away but actually there was hidden depths and stuff you could latch onto and reasons to kind of fall in love with them and now they're kind of going for these like universal truths that seem like they're full of meaning and they actually actually really mean nothing they're just like it just feels like it's the job to them and they do a serviceable job they're a fine band but this is like a five out of ten for me yeah, I was going to make the Foo Fires comparison as well and say that unlike with that album, I didn't hate this, it didn't bother me, it didn't ruin my week, it didn't feel like a chore. Throwing it on eventually was like, I was like, yeah, I'll listen to it again, why not? Uh, it's pleasurable on the ear, even if it is just like, it's such a product, they are a business. Not every business needs to go forever, maybe they feel like they do. Four out of ten, you could do a lot worse. And uh, yeah, could, Do you reckon, just like as a matter of interest, because I do think the production is a big part of the problem, and maybe Caleb not having a different guiding voice, would they be like, 
prime candidates for the Rick Rubin treatment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Could that work? There's a thumbs it up from work. a thumbs up and an Adam applause Shanahan. from Adam, <laughs> a, a, Adam Shanahan's direction. It might, yeah, it might just work. I mean, like it's yeah, maybe may, maybe there is a an over reliance on this kind of very just kind of boring American radio sound of the last kind of 10 years that like you don't need to do it but also the, but they then again the, but, ancient as well but the don't fans, they? Like but they're they, yeah they sound wrecked but the fans who yeah. they don't sound young but the fans who have stayed with them now the fans who have made that decision to stay on board and to keep buying the records and going to the gigs this is probably what they want let's be honest this is a band now for basic people that's just kind of what they've like eased into and it's like if you get off on a use somebody if, like, if you're like craving that right now in a post-pandemic world that's what i want well then here you go here's another album of it you know it's it's here a couple of all right songs golden rest's age is yeah. a good tune like it is a Some fun song salvage. but yeah but that is more annoying isn't it when you're like this could There's be better. something there yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know caleb follow a solo album does that interest you very much does yeah and maybe a jared solo album of just basses <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Listen, uh, it's time to move on to our top five this week. Top five sellout moments. Before we get into that and into the kind of minutiae of all that and the whole like difficulty of even doing this top five, here's Maynard James Keenan from Tool to remind <laughs> us about selling out. there with the infamously titled Hooker with a Penis, uh, in which Maynard James Keenan rejects the idea that Tool sold out. Uh, so <laughs> essentially, the selling out thing, it's interesting. I interviewed Frank Turner, notoriously kind of independent spirit, although some people yeah. say that he isn't. I interviewed him back in 2011 in Hot Press. I know you interviewed him one stage as well. He's he's another one who's great for the, great for a quote. You know, like he'll he really is. He'll write your interview for you. And um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of paragraphs now from, from, from Dave's first year in Hot Press. Uh, Turner has been the subject of some especially petty judgment in recent months, I said, being quite judgmental myself, apparently, uh, following his appearance in a short film sponsored by Relentless Energy. Some fans chose to be offended, declaring Turner a sellout, not that it bothered him in the slightest. And Frank Turner said to me, back when I was in Million Dead, when we first did a tour in a van that had seats in it, we had friends telling us that we'd sold out. There's plenty of people sitting by the laptops in their mother's basement. People are obsessed with that term. Uh, with their trigger finger itching, waiting to type the word sell it onto a forum about somebody. I don't care i haven't cared for a long time so fucking whatever now in fairness whether you agree with him or maynard james keenan these are very unblunt points that they're making i think a musician always has the right to say selling out isn't even a thing like like it doesn't exist i mean ultimately what is selling out how do we define it is it one of those words that doesn't quite have a fair enough meaning same time i think craig made a pretty good case that kings leon made a choice you know they saw themselves at a crossroads and you, somebody, you know, brought them down that dollar highway. Uh, how do you define it? We're not being intensely judgmental. And in fairness, listen, if Zane Lowe came along to us tomorrow and was like, lads, 
come on board. I'm like, for fuck's sake. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, we're not saying we have ultimate integrity, you know, like, but, but, uh, like this- I went into advertising. <laughs> Dave has worked in advertising. There are no innocent bystanders no, in this not, capitalist system. Not on this show. Uh, but this is the topic that you chose. So, you know, why am I the one defending it? You, you take the microphone now, sir. I do think it's an interesting one. Um, more so because of like how the culture views it and maybe how it's morphed uh, like for music fans over the years. And like looking at some of the ones I picked, you know, from different decades, it does change. Like obviously back in the 60s, um, there was a lot of talk of like, you can't sell out to the man, um, you can't do ads, you can't license your music. You've got to have that kind of level of integrity that changes and gradually gets different then you know 70s and 80s just kind of rock bands going for the pop market that's frowned on the kind of cheesiness of your phil collins and all that kind of stuff um and it does morph and change whereas now i think like uh, do you know what i think happened i think with the waning kind of fortunes of rock which was so tied to like this kind of fake authenticity for years because you know white blokes with guitars were in a comfortable position where they could do that um I think as hip hop kind of took over where it was more about the hustle and more being realistic and trying to get yourself out there, it became a bit more acceptable to just, you know, view your art form as also a business. And then I think the collapse of the music industry entirely meant that like people now look at it like if an artist can get money in any way possible from creating this stuff, they're essentially giving the world for free. It's all fair game. So a lot of these choices really go back to like stuff that at the time, you know, acts were vilified for um but maybe maybe because they kind of set the stage they wouldn't you know we wouldn't think twice about it but the ones i picked i think are like interesting in terms of like i went for ones that are just like it's more about the blatant audacity of their switch up to be honest and having a bit of fun with it as you say because it's not always a bad thing sometimes it's just a pragmatic decision but it makes for some interesting results and speaking of blatant audacity, it's patreon.com slash no encore. If, <laughs> if you want to help support this show, in return, you'll get bonus episodes, you'll get playlists, you get weekly episode previews, and you'll get our undying gratefulness and love. And of course, keep me with a steady battery supply. I promise to get rechargeable ones and do better for the environment. Patreon.com slash no encore. Craig, kick us off. Top five sellout moments. You go first. Okay, um, proving there's no sacred cows on this show, um, although I think the constant references to Maxwell Silverhammer attests to that already. Here's an iconic artist who decided he'd quite like to be a run-of-the-mill pop megastar in the 80s. Yeah, David Bowie, dear David. Now you've gone love, and done which it. It's a banger. Um, it's a great song from 1983's "Let's Dance." Um, yeah, it was, it's very 80s. Buckaroo. Um, he'd enlisted Nile Rodgers. Um, it was like this album was kind of one of just another one of his reinventions, I guess, his own spin on like 80s synth pop and danceable music. But what happened was he got very swept up in it, um, as he said himself, and it definitely altered his kind of artistic course thereafter. Um, 
And yeah, like I th- I picked this song in particular because while I think Let's Dance is a terrific album, this song was then used as a, a, to form a duet with Tina Turner for a Pepsi commercial he did around about 1987, which was like his kind of nadir in terms of just really selling out. It's a weird ad as well. If you want to check it out on YouTube, it's like he's kind of Frankenstein and I think he creates Tina Turner and then they like dance outside a diner because of course and it's like cheesy as hell and there's lots of hairspray and it's kind of steampunk uh, uh, as well. Before and- you get too judgmental, Craig, we should probably remind ourselves at this point that it was in fact his choice and the choice of a new generation. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Maybe Thanks. if it was Coke, it would have been all right. He was, you know, a bigger fan of Coke, as we know. But around about that time, um, he was releasing. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah, true. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Rest in peace. Um, Never Let Me Down was released around this time, which was probably his worst album. It followed Tonight, where basically saw him trying to hang on to this new audience he had. And in his desperation to keep the pop hits flowing, he did incredible stuff like go back to songs he'd written specifically for Iggy Pop and just pilfer them back for himself and put on this weird synth sheen and just like do songs like Tonight um China Girl as well was on Let's Dance I believe it's just he'd run completely out of ideas he was richer than ever before after Let's Dance he apparently retreated to Switzerland to work and ski (laughs) and he said himself like he didn't put any effort into the next two albums which is like the definition of selling out he just didn't care what he was putting out pretty much Uh, I have a quote here from him he said I went mainstream in a major way with the song Let's Dance great song of course i pandered to that in my next few albums and what i found i had done was put, put a box around myself it was very hard for people to see me as anything other than the person in the suit who did less dance and it was driving me mad because it took all my passion for experimenting away and he would subsequently refer to those years as his phil collins years um Phil Collins was once told this in an interview, <laughs> just reading this week, <laughs> and the journalist wrote, it felt very Dave of a, of a piece. <laughs> he mentions it to Phil and the line is, Phil's face falls at the recollection. <laughs> it's just like, why say it to him? But yeah, it was his Phil Collins ears. And wait, 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 wait. You say it's a Dave. Didn't you once, didn't you once bring up a one star review that Codeline got to Codeline? I had to. It was in Q magazine. <laughs> well, then. <laughs> when Paul Reese was editor, how did they only get one star? And you said, and I remember you saying that their faces fell. So yeah, like, like listen, own it. I got mate. it out of the way nice and early. And they're good lads. <laughs> they are good Codeline lads. Has. They are good lads. Fair play to them. Uh, what do you think would have yeah. happened with Bowie around this time if he hooked up? would say the frontman of the rolling stones what like, like what, what what would that have sounded like do we think we can only imagine <laughs> but um <laughs> it would have been a panoply of magic and creative fertility and yeah <laughs> heard all, all around video. the world Jesus i would Christ. say <laughs> okay uh right your fifth yeah i'll give you my fifth here's my here, here's my sell at moment we're gonna start with a big one here and a very predictable one but let's do it we are going after napster legally in a legal form but at the same time which is becoming increasingly important to us is to try and get this debate out into the public forum to try and make people understand what's at stake here and what the ramifications are if this is not something that's dealt with and and sort of guided into some sort of uh, with some sort of parameters that makes the artists the service providers 
and the fans out there happy. I mean, nothing says cool metal band like making sure the public are aware of the stakes and the ramifications for major label artists and their income. <laughs> it is, of course, Lars Ulrich and Metallica versus Napster. Now, some people would say that Metallica sold out on the Black Album, and that's probably fair in terms of making a, a musical decision mm. to be a bit more commercial. That album was a fucking monster, and it was a lot cleaner, I guess, a lot more kind of radio-friendly in some respects, you know, like Enter Sandman, than the albums that came before it. So, uh, but certainly, you know, was the beginning of a band becoming a brand, and few bands have become brands better than Metallica. So, the interesting thing about the never-ending Napster thing, essentially, which I'll get into in a second, is that, like, the entire band obviously signed off on going after an early file-sharing service which allowed you to illegally download music. But Lars Ulrich is the poster boy for this, and he's yeah. the one that everyone hates <laughs> as a result of this. So, you know, kind of potted history here. For anyone who doesn't know about what Napster is, it preceded Spotify and YouTube and all kinds of things in a in a, a very kind of outlaw way around the turn of the century. A guy called Sean Fanning in college creates Napster. It's a legal file-sharing service. Um... The way it works is you, people uploaded music and if you download it as well, like, you know, you, like you, whatever files you had in your computer, you know, it became one big fucking community. Uh, I tried it back in the day. It took me about two oh, or three it was days. Brilliant. It oh, was nice. It was great for like spending four hours to download one Red Hot Chili Peppers B-side. <laughs> it took me about two days to download Nucky by Limp Bizkit. And it was just like, because, you know, wonderful dial-up internet and like just going back to it after, oh my God, but it was, it was formative, you and know? And also, you were sorry, learning. Not, not, not knowing if it was actually going to be a legit file or something. It was a few times I like spent ages downloading a song and it was just some like live version of like Millie Vanilli or something who didn't even <laughs> properly perform live <laughs> raising all kinds of questions in the process <laughs> so yeah I guess Napster gave birth to LimeWire you know back in the days of using like real player and stuff you know it's a lot more uh, you, you could argue that like Spotify for example is still technically a very bad thing especially for musicians but this was this was the Wild West Craig you know and um, yeah the first ever lawsuit against them was actually filed by the Recording Industry Association of America. That was at the beginning of the year 2000. But by the time April 13, 2000 rolled around, Metallica had got involved. So apparently the way it worked was that like Metallica were alerted by this, this entire system and the fact that their music was being pirated by their co-manager Cliff Bernstein. Uh, the early edits of their single, I Disappear, which was on the Mission Possible 2 soundtrack, which is a fucking banger, by the way. Um, like... So this is, it's not even out yet. It's under lock and key. And apparently it ends up on Napster. Lars Ulrich in an interview in 2013 with the Huffington Post said, I got a call from her office and said it traces back to something called Napster. So Lars went after it pretty hard. They put out a press release and said, and I quote, with each project, we go through a grueling creative process to achieve music that we feel is representative of Metallica that very moment in our lives. We take our craft, whether it be the music, the lyrics, or the photos and the artwork, very seriously, as do most artists. It is therefore sickening to know that our art is being traded like a commodity rather than the art that it is. From a business standpoint, this is about piracy, taking something that doesn't belong to you, and that is morally and legally wrong. The trading of such information, whether it's music, videos, photos, or whatever, is in effect trafficking in stolen goods. Goods. Now, ultimately, you can say that that's not wrong. You know, you can get into the piracy argument. You, yeah. you know, you can say like music is a product, <clears throat> yada yada yada. But it led a lot of Metallica fans, in particular, to become extremely pissed off, turn on the band, and effectively be like, "Fuck you guys!" You know, we've we've bought all your stuff up until now. We are fans. We go to your shows, etc. 
And Lars, of course, was very much the public kind of figure of this. They settled the lawsuit in 2001. Dr. Dre also sued them. And I believe Lars Ulrich said that uh, we resolved this in a way that works for fans, recording artists and songwriters alike. Our beef hasn't been with the concept of sharing music. Everyone knows that uh, we've never objected to our fans trading tapes of our live concert performances. The problem we had with Napster was that they never asked us or other artists if we wanted to participate in this business. We believe that this settlement will create the kind of enhanced protection for artists that we've been seeking from Napster. Do you think he was right about that? Do you think he was right about the whole thing? Where do you stand on this one, Craig? I mean, that opening clip was kind of prescient words from um, one of the most talented damn tennis players metal music's ever seen. <laughs> uh, but you're right, because he was the front of it, because they did it in such a kind of crude way. Um, I, I, I vaguely remember the details being about, like, weren't individual downloaders being targeted and being sued like there you'd hear stories of like someone's granny got you know accidentally you know had napster going and they were going directly after her so there was all all this kind of you know stuff going around it didn't help that it was at the end of a decade where yep they'd put out the self-titles they'd also then gone kind of more hard rock totally with load and reload which i think is something they just wanted to do but it did feel like they were getting very vanilla and, you know, they were in the world's then of like S&M and working with orchestras and feeling a bit, bit out of touch, maybe. Yeah. And I mean, listen, I, I, as we know, I went to see them there a while ago and on this, you know, e- extreme package tour thing that you can spend an awful lot of money on. They have a touring museum. They are a product. Uh, let's hear what Lars had to say, summing the whole thing up, speaking to Rolling Stone a few years ago. What I learned was that the thing that I love about Metallica and one of the things that I pride myself about Metallica is that we're very impulsive. That impulsivity occasionally bites us in the ass because we always jump. And like I said, I think in a creative environment, that's a, a great situation. But once in a while, you got to just do a little bit of due diligence. With the Napster thing, we sort of just jumped straight out and said, well, fuck these guys let's go after them and then all of a sudden you know we were just like deer caught in the headlights and i guess i underestimated what napster meant to people in terms of of what it represented in terms of freedom and and all that kind of stuff do you know what i mean because to me it was a like i said a back alley brawl i mean it was just a street fight back to your mansion lars all right what do you got up next for you okay this is um this is the start of a slippery slope basically and it's kind of it's ironic enough that this is one of my sellout moments when just this past week i think zoomers were trying to cancel uh this artist for the very song on tiktok Lyrics aside, yeah, I think this was just a real move into the realm of just getting more radio play. And it's led to like a host of excruciating collaborations with the kind of artists he once mocked. Yeah, Eminem with Love The Way You Lie and Rihanna, of course. Nothing wrong with a Rihanna song, 
but it's um, a tasteful route into the hearts of Poptimists everywhere. It's kind of one of those signposts as well. Like, I feel like when Jay-Z started, you know, collaborating quite a bit with Rihanna, it did signal maybe a cynical move towards just pure pop and the charts. And this was Eminem. He was kind of post-return. Um, so Relapse came out after he'd um, overcome his addiction issues. And it was very much like him just kind of working through a lot of stuff. Um to get himself into a good mental place. And then he said following that record that, listen, that record was uh, just rap records. I wasn't thinking about what the average listener might like or not like, which is a direct quote. And um, he decided the way to go was to be more emotionally driven, um, downplay the Slim Shady stuff, have no skits on the record. The record was Recovery and there was a Pink collaboration on it as well. It just opened up the floodgates for all of this very, very weak, melodramatic nonsense. And that point about, like, Kings of Leon not recognising or wanting to listen to the band they became. I feel like, this was 2010, Marshall Mathers in 1999, 2000, just a decade earlier, hearing one of these songs would have been like, who is this chump? What is he doing? And he just, whatever you think about, like, Eminem's core values starting out, um, there's no denying he definitely abandoned them at this point. And as I said, like, it's it's more about, you know, this song is kind of, it's fine, it's, it's grand, but it's more about what it led to. And we covered um, Revival from a few years ago on this show with songs like River by Ed Sheeran, um, Pink again on Need Me, Alicia Keys. Uh, it opened with that Walk on Water song where Beyonce sounded like she was doing him a favour for radio play. Just so cheesy and kind of a little bit desperate. Um, it really weakened him. It was very commercial. And yeah, he's never really, ironically, <laughs> recovered for me. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I kind of feel like it's your classic point we always make about Eminem. Incredible ability. No one can do it like he can. Machine gun style. Distinctive voice was obviously counterculture when he arrived etc i was never the biggest fan you know went through a teenage phase of course of those first few albums but didn't really go too far beyond that i yeah. don't generally go in for the whole you know the often repeated kind of red flag thing that you see when it's like oh if, if a guy tells you his favorite rapper is eminem but that's one i can kind of support you know it's like i just feel like the depth isn't there uh, around that time though I, he has got one song i quite like which is called Spacebound, which i think is on it's on one of those recovery or relapse and it's a very nice song this song isn't the worst song of all time but yeah it's incredibly you know you're gonna hear it in fucking you know a shopping mall or whatever right so it's just like but i don't know man maybe this is just the way that you have to go you have to move with the times kings of leon yeah. style and just make that bank my yeah my thing is like even at that point like can you imagine him going back and listening to this song for enjoyment like himself i can't read no it. this song is like the, the old this song is this song is the literal result of a business meeting like there's no question yeah, that it yeah. isn't it, it helps both artists and yeah so it's being cancelled this week is it yeah because it obviously deals with um domestic violence and like he's obviously playing a character and he's talking about how he's abusive and blah 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 but i, I think they picked up on a lyric where he kind of does a comparative thing where he try like there's a get out of jail free bit in one of the verses where he says like oh you're violent too blah 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 we're kind of the same which is dodgy 
But like he's tr- he's clearly trying to deal with domestic abuse in like a fucking responsible way for fucking him. So it just seemed like something that people were latching onto out of context, which is shocking for social media. It's also kind of scary that a song from 2010 is now being brought up as if it's like fucking I know, baby it's I cold know. outside. It's like, and like, have you heard the rest of his catalog? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's much worse culprits than this. Like, uh, all right, uh, we'll move on to number four for me this week. Operate. Man, you gotta have love to set it straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all. People killing, people dying, children hurt, and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach and what you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us send some guidance from above. These people got me, got me questioning. Where is the That's Black Eyed Peas, Where Is The Love, a song I fucking hate. Craig, where do you stand on Black Eyed Peas in general? Um, Very far away from them. <laughs> if any of their music is being played, I don't want to know about it. This was their breakthrough hit though, Dave. What are you talking about? And that message... It's a nice message. Where is yeah, the look, love, listen, Dave? I I know. I mean, like I, I am sometimes casting the role of antagonist. I can be a bit of a cynic. So and maybe right now, more than ever, Craig. Uh-huh. <laughs> the world needs this message. However, I, I didn't buy it for a second. Back in the extra vision days, of course, it would come on the TV and I would want to leave the fucking job. But basically, it's not good, is it? Um but there's this whole perpetuating story about black IPs that in fact, pre Fergie so this was 2003. She joined the act in 2002. They'd already put out a couple of albums. Apparently, they were quite respected in, like, you know, underground hip-hop and R&B circles. This was their breakthrough. And it, it is unfair, I think, in some respects, in some corners, to, like, you know, paint all this on Fergie and, you know, pick a woman and be like, you know, the, the, you could make the argument that there are misogynistic undertones. You know, she ruined the band, etc. So, I, I, you know, I did some digging. Um, there was uh, a female member in the group before her by the name of uh, Kim Hill. And yeah. she left the band to make way for, for Fergie. Apparently, Nicole Scherzinger of the Pussycat Dolls was considered as well, but they went with Fergie in the end and very much moved into this kind of very, you know, middle of the day American radio schmaltzy. And then I guess as time goes on, you know, kind of party music, club music, EDM crap, you know, whatever they fucking do, it's just always garbage. That's, that's the one consistent in this life. Death taxes and Black Eyed Peas being horrific. But um, good interview with Kim Hill a few years ago, um, in which she shed some light essentially on the kind of changes within the act. So, like I say, she exits around 2002. She said there was new management that came in and it brought with it a whole different set of expectations and pressure. It started to get clumsy and messy. You know, she was like, you want me to grind on Will I Am in a bathing suit? Like, this is being asked of me and never of the guys. And it was happening from an executive level. The tug of war was about my sexuality and how much of that I was willing to literally strip down. I never wanted to be objectified while doing my music. You know, it's about my voice. Like, this was not not what she wanted. Um, She said that it was the Black Eyed Peas duty as a group to progress hip hop. Um, being happy at a time in hip-hop when it really wasn't okay to just be happy. So I guess she was on board with the kind of, you know, more lighter fare of what they're doing, but certainly not that kind of, you know, from the boardroom kind of, you know, exploitation stuff. Um, yeah. She said that edginess was totally stamped out by outside voices and essentially the pressure started coming to soften it up and make a quote super commercial. I said, we're not really going to do that, are we? And the guys were like, you don't have to go back to East LA if this doesn't work out. 
Uh, not wanting to tear the group apart, she left and pursued a solo career. She says she's nothing but love for Will I Am and the, and the group. Says no one handed them anything they worked their asses off. They deserve it. She's nothing against Fergie. Said she didn't do anything to me, didn't take anything from me. Uh, I do feel if we ever met, it'd be an embrace with a hug and a deep breath because I think we know something about being that female in that construct and that it's tough. So it would appear that this group were obviously taking off to some degree, getting attention from major labels and so on. And someone somewhere or some cabal of suits somewhere were like, now we need to like push the sexiness of this group. We need to really kind of, you know, I guess make it safe, but also make it sexy. And just like that, I, I can almost guarantee would seep into the songwriting and you end up with like just these really crap run of the mill played fucking 15 times a day on the box songs that like, I don't get it. I never have. I mean, I think that they are like, well, I am particular. Like, I mean, like, I just feel like it's, it's so businessy it's so commercial it's such a product where like where where's the heart craig where is the love (laughs) it's one step removed from pitbull isn't it really is in that territory and yeah i fully agree like it's not it's not it's not a case of fergie came in and ruined the group it's these three guys decided they wanted to go a particular way um that way was absolutely trash musically and they enlisted a pop artist to help them out. And she came in and made them extremely popular and did her job. And yeah, a very little time for Will I Am. Huge sellouts and can't stand their music. Okay, my next choice. And this is actually a group that went hip hop rather than vice versa in the 1980s, which you could have picked as like their cynical sellout moment but actually it was kind of a a risk creatively it was proactive it worked but by the 90s they were going the lazy route to hits so they were paying writers and they were putting their daughters in weirdly leering videos here you go Yeah, Aerosmith, <laughs> the greatest American rock band of all time, a lot of people would say. Turning uh, turning 51 this year, by the way. 51 years of age, this band. Jesus They're around Christ. since 1970. Always, I'm not making this up. Do you know what? They've always been like a weird pocket universe Rolling Stones, isn't it? So it makes sense that they would have that kind of longevity, but not quite as much. And yeah, this was... The thing you could say about Ro- the Rolling Stones is... They kind of stopped caring about the really rehashed rock records they put out. They never went kind of full pop as a band. But Aerosmith were just like, I'm going to chase all the trends. Um, We're going to kind of keep current. We're going to get in writers when we can't, like when we're not creatively stimulated enough to, you know, come up with new stuff. We'll just get other people to do it for us and keep the train moving. And yeah, this was crazy from their biggest selling album, 1993, Get a Grip, which is when they really started leaning heavily on <laughs> Their titles are outrageous. I remember, they had a, I remember they had an album called Just Push Play and it was like a woman holding a yeah. fucking ghetto blaster. <laughs> this song, by the way, crazy. This was like, like very like early memories of me watching MTV. This was always yes. on and yeah the video is what Liv Tyler Alicia Silverstone or what? Alicia Sil- Silverstone yeah kind of skipping school and um getting a belly button road, piercing and all, a, yeah, like an like, underage Telman Louise thing completely, they, yeah. they do like they start stripping I think at one point there was skinny dipping 
it was exciting as a as a kind of young child, but a bit dodged considering Steven Tyler was the father of Liv Tyler, um, not dad of the year material really, and yeah, like crazy was um, I'm not sure if it was followed up or preceded by crying. Do you remember that song? It's the identical same dude. Song. I actually <laughs> until you until you said that right, I was like confusing the two because. Oh my god, that that yeah, I was crying when yeah, I left. Yeah, it's song. exactly There's the same. There's a breakdown online where they go like the song forms everything, like it's the exact same. It's like, do you remember when, speaking of the devil, Johnny Burrell, um, when he does that comparison between Dakota by Stereophonics and Sex on Fire by Kings of Leon? Yeah, yeah, like, it's hilarious. Like, this is Landfill Indie. They're so close. The two of those songs are the exact same, the, in the exact same way, but they're by the same band on the same, the same album. album. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> But like the reviews at the time were just like Rolling Stone was like um, just really laying into it. Hearing the once wicked Tyler reduced to mouthing, what can I do, honey? I feel like the colour blue on the leaden crazy surely represents some kind of low watermark. Tyler at least deserves better lines than Michael Bolton. It's very Michael Bolton. So like, and the songwriter was a dude that worked for Michael Bolton. Ah, Do you know what I mean? So it's just a total cash cow and would, of course, ultimately lead to don't want to miss a thing. Their biggest hit. Fucking hate it. Their only US number one. Hate it so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, you know, the Liv Tyler connection where she's like getting off with Ben Affleck. Getting off with Ben Affleck. And- <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> In Armageddon, yeah. And the song itself wasn't written by them, of course. It was a Diane Warren song. And she said she originally envisioned um, it being performed by Celine Dion or somebody like that. <laughs> I hope it was Aerosmith. <laughs> they're horrible. I just, I can't, everything yeah. about their aesthetic, even their logo, it's gross. I just, I can't stand them. I mean, whatever about my own foibles when it comes to music, uh, which we're about to get into, but I, I just feel yeah. like Aerosmith, Jesus Christ. Sweet Emotion's a great song though, fair play to them. Back from Sweet Emotion's great, you know, Dream On, and then they were done. Dream On is amazing. That's an amazing song. I can't believe it's the same band. Like, what the fuck? I know, I know. They sold out, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right, perfect. Okay, number three for me. Um, Yeah, like, have a little patience with me on this one. No, it's not take that. Oh. vocal do you know who this is greg um is this like an angels and airwaves kind of situation you're very close like you're very very close okay who is it do you don't know who it is uh, i think a celebrity celebrities band um problematic celebrity nah, help me out Go oscar winning celebrity it's jared leto and 30 seconds to mars oh 30 seconds to mars <laughs> <laughs> right. hold on they were good no see they, they, like i say <laughs> patience patience but allow me to explain okay, okay, myself okay. before the court um so this song is called kings and queens and uh it came in 2008 now listen i'm not going to make the case i'm not going to make the case that 30 seconds to mars we're going to be some exceptional rare gem in the world of alternative music but I will admit to enjoying a handful of songs from their first two albums at the time. And frankly, they surprised me a little bit in this regard. I remember being in my mate's house and he was like, do you know Jared Leto has a band? I was like, what? It must be horrendous. And he put on Attack, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a great song. 
but I did like it, you know? That was around the time I was into all kinds of, you know, alternative emo, new metal kind of stuff, and I was like, you know, these guys could be okay. Who knows? Maybe, possibly. I guess, you know, I'll give it a go. But, like, you know, I, I, you know, like, I never listened to a full album from start to finish. I didn't really, you know, jump onto it. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that they weren't an embarrassment, you know, and that's a decent start for Jared Leto's in a band now. So Smash Cut to 2008, and this is war. So listen... (laughs) This is the part of the show where I tell you, if you haven't gone and listened to our No Popcorn episode on Artifact, which is a 30 Seconds to Mars documentary directed by Jared Leto under a pseudonym, highly encourage you to do that. (laughs) Highly encourage you to watch this film because it's fucking bizarre. And it's all about making this album, This Is War. Kings and Queens was the lead single. And like, it's just, this is the ultimate. You mentioned earlier on that, I guess, Kings of Leon had the privilege of the Bono talk, you know? I mean, this is the most U2 aping, trend-chasing thing. Yeah. And listen, like I say, I'm not anticipating a sensitive art project from Jared Leto, but I felt like maybe they could have clung to those slightly kind of more hewn, rougher edges that they were trying to do, but instead he woke up one day and was like, fuck it, man, let's make Stadium Rock. And they're a terrible band, you know, they have a weird fan base, fair play to it. If, if it does it for you, great, no judgment, you know, all good. I don't get it. He's problematic in the extreme. <laughs> and I just, like, at what point is this not a vanity project? Like, I mean, so I guess the sellout aspect of it is more like the commercial decision to be like, let's just rinse it, you know, let's just fucking write yeah. hollow Kanye West is on a song on this album, by the way. Like, how did that happen? Celebrity mate. Yeah, I guess doing him a favour. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, listen, not a good band, but an interesting one. It's always interesting when, like, a celebrity, especially because he gave up, like, you know, a lot of his acting career for a while to do this. It wasn't just like, oh, I'll do it one summer and then whatever. They played like four or five albums. And I mean, and he's very much, he still bigs up his own band. He always talks about it. He thinks, like, Jared Leto thinks and Shannon Leto, his brother, fuck me, the the Johnny drama of the music world, like, they think that they are in one of the great bands, and no one has told them otherwise, which is just astonishing to me. I guess if you're going to start a cult, um, which seems like the end kind of end game for Jared Leto, being a rock star is probably a better way in than being a film star, just historically. So that's my rationale for it. Um, okay, for my number two, um, I've got a before and after here, which might be interesting. So let's hear what this lot used to sound like. Snap. The aforementioned Kim Hill there. Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, it's time for the worst group in the world again. <laughs> I <laughs> welcome what it. they morphed into. A slightly different tune. Let's hear it. We got the beat that 808 that boom boom in your town. People in the place. If you want to get down. Put your
me just uh, let, let me just hand up like in the classroom here. Uh, let me just say that like we, I guess you know, in fairness, you know, our track record here of like not having crossover is quite high. And yeah. there are times when I wonder if, like, you were to say one, I might just be like, oh, that's my number two, and we combine it in the moment. Um, you know, not just to save time, but, you know, rather than repeating ourselves. But in this situation, I think the right decision was made by whichever one of us telekinetically knew it. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to have another five minutes just kicking the fuck out of Black Eyed Peas. Let's do it. <laughs> I knew I had those clips up my sleeve, so, um, yeah, it's stark, isn't it? Because, like you, I'd never really gone back to, you know previous Black Eyed Peas stuff but it's the kind of story you'd always hear of like they used to be great and you know as someone that's like a fan of Talib Kweli and Black Star and stuff like that you know the idea of them being these kind of like kind of humble conscious backpackers you know draw to lyricism and poetry and hip-hop and then turning into this it's just remarkable and yeah I picked I picked that track because I agree with you that obviously bringing in Fergie, like they had a clear plan of what they're going to do. Apparently, by all accounts, they were still doing some vaguely interesting work, according to people that have listened to all those albums. But by this stage, which is the album The End, E-N-D, which I think is some like N-E-R-D ripoff of like Energy Never Dies or something like that. They were just pure like watered down EDM pop drivel. Um, It's just crazy. Like... As as late as 2005, apparently, they had a lyric in one of her songs, which is like a James Brown thing, uh, they, they don't want music, where the hook was, they don't want music, they just want boom, 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 boom. And then 2009, and they've slid even further down <laughs> to just making a song called Boom, Boom, Bow. Well, just like gibberish, it means nothing, <laughs> like remarkable. That album that you referenced, I actually forgot to read out a quote from uh, when I was talking about it there a few minutes ago. In a positive review of that album in Rolling Stone, in 2009 uh, they said you know when the group hired a blonde bombshell named Stacy Fergie Ferguson and gave up their pursuit of backpack rapper cred they've made a kind of spiritual practice of recording futuristic songs a total aesthetic commitment that extends from their garish wardrobes to their united colours of Benetton worldview so they were still being well received Craig by the mainstream media in America the MSM in 2009 <laughs> fake news Terrible band. Uh, I have fond, fond memories, though, of uh, when I was in DCU. I remember we had a news day, and I remember myself and a mate of mine, like, they were on X Factor the night before, and they played, like, the time brackets dirty bit, and we, like, watched that performance <laughs> with its drop, which, I swear to God, we uh, we genuinely were, like, pissing off other students with how much of a show we were putting on in terms of how hard we were laughing and i always flash back to that moment and it was a a simpler time a greater time and one of the one of the worst bands ever right i mean like like without question oh for sure are they they still going um i don't know they might be on hiatus i feel like they'll go on forever we we will never be that lucky do you know what i mean (laughs) okay right uh anything more before we move on and like any further boots neon or otherwise to stick in I think we've presented the evidence. People have the facts and the information and they suck. <laughs> we find you guilty, Black Eyed Peas. Number two for yeah. me. Uh, this was a tough one to settle on. And it's still a tough... I think this is a difficult argument to make, but I'm going to make it. So let's make it. Don't want to be an American idiot. Don't want Welcome to our new 
That is, of course, Green Day, an American idiot in 2004. Uh, Green Day got my shout here at a real Sophie's Choice situation. It was going to be them or it was going to be Muse. But I found, oh. I thought with Muse, it was actually, they were an even more unwieldy shout for this. Because it was like, I was I was thinking like Black Holes and Revelations and like a song like Starlight, which of course would go on to soundtrack, I don't know, the fucking darts on Sky Sports forever or something. But ultimately... I mean, Muse have kind of stuck to their their bizarre "We Want to Be Queen" yeah, guns. Yeah, they're kind of too weird, aren't they? I think so. Now they still write, yeah. you know, songs that will play on, you know, I guess like what the fucking intro to the Tonight Show on Virgin Media is like uprising, which is so funny. Uh, but like, but yeah, you can make you can make the argument that that was always part of the plan with them. Like as you say, they wanted to be Queen, so like being bombastic and huge and popular is kind of part of the Muse thing. Yeah, and like in fairness, I mean, like I know their first album, people tend to kind of be like oh they were almost a bit like Radiohead and then the second one they went a bit more whatever but like the second one's where I came into them and like Plug in Baby when I heard that that was a single it's accessible as hell I don't know if you can say that Muse have sold out they're still doing bullshit nonsense stuff and if anything uh, yeah it's a tough one with Green Day I mean the argument with Green Day is that they sold out fucking when they wrote Basket Case you know so I mean like it's hard to even cite this as the thing because even like if I cite this American Idiot right which seems very obvious to me in terms of like you know oh it's about George Bush uh, but this is what gave them their second chapter um but then, if I'm accusing them of selling out here, they didn't put out another album for five years after this, so it's kind of not really capitalising on the moment. But I think what I've ultimately settled on here is that this is the turning point for Green Day becoming just another band, you know, settling into that kind of, let's just, you know, drive dump trucks full of money up to our house. We have a formula now. We're not going to try anymore. Like, who cares, you know? And the songs, the quality, like, it just becomes that stale as fuck nothingness. I don't, like, I liked Green Day a lot when I was younger. I thought they were cool. Uh, they have some songs I absolutely love. But I, I don't know how good a band they are. I don't know how good a band they, they can be judged to be overall. And at this stage, they're just vomiting out music, like, for the last kind of, you know, <laughs> few years of of just nothing. They're just there. They just, they're an entity they have a TM next to them. They're like the last thing, the furthest thing from a punk band you can possibly imagine. Incidentally, can you name the album for 10 points, Craig, the album that followed American Idiot five years later? Can you name it? Um, yeah, I can. If you give me like 10 minutes, <laughs> it's like 21st century, br- 21st century breakdown. Is that right? Correct. He got it. Yeah, I got one <laughs> right. Finally, one of my on the spot questions. <laughs> Incredible. But yeah, I, I just kind of feel like Green Day for so long have just been like, grand, this'll do. And they're just a pale imitation from this late career boost onwards. So it's yeah. more about, you know, seeing a moment where the money started coming in, the radio play was getting bigger. And they were like, yeah, okay, cool. We don't need to try anymore. Like, this'll do. And we don't need to be inventive. We don't need to be witty. We just need to keep making an album every few years. Foo Fighters style. It's that model. We're, an Amer- yeah. we're, we're a prestige American band now somehow. And we can just keep just whatever. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, like it just doesn't matter. Here, Here's Billy Joe Armstrong with another shit album. And people will buy it. And that's it. You've made your argument very well. Um, I can also make your argument for you. They did not make my list, but I have a little clip of the American Idiot musical, if you'd like to hear it. I feel like a civil war, like a knife in the heart. I've got an axe to grind and it is splitting my head open. No friends. No girls. I need both. See Jimmy's coming down across the... Punk rock. Broadway, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You wait, it's like buses, you know? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Okay, my number one. Um, 
And this is this kind of speaks, I guess, to maybe the ambiguity around selling out. Um, we're going back to my beloved 90s because I think this is a case of like, it's a really stark contrast again. It kind of blew me away this week, but it's not so much selling out as buying in. I've got a before and after. Um, let's hear the before. Let's hear this band um, when they were just some scuzzy punks from Orange County. That was Mean Machine from 1995. Um, Early new metal, maybe. (laughs) I think they were kind of respected within their local scene as well. Um, They then had like a kind of freak hit, which was an outlier on one of their albums. It sounded a little like this. It, it wasn't that song, Adam, but it also sounded exactly like that because that was what continued on. So the freak hit was Fly. It sounded like that. And so did all of the rest of their songs. Just like that one. Um, Sugar Ray. Mark McGrath. Mark McGrath, I believe he goes by, which is like speaks a lot. <laughs> like whenever you hear Mark McGrath. And <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> they, had a, they had an album in 1997, Floored. It had the song Fly on it. Uh, twice, of course. One was with a reggae artist. Um, became a hit. Uh, was massive. It was weird. It was a total outlier. And they just thought, okay, we can latch onto this and make songs exactly like the one you just he- heard. And yeah, it was the late 90s. Summertime for humanity. <laughs> um, 1999, this album came out. It was actually called um, 1459, which was like a play on like, oh, they're 15 minutes of fame. We're going to be up. And... <laughs> Mark McGrath, of course, would go on to host um, various talent shows. He was on Extra. He was, yeah, he was the host of Pussycat Dolls Presents, The Search for the Next Doll. They opened for Megadeth. It's the glamour gig they all wanted. (laughs) This was just such a kind of, such a weird turnaround. I couldn't believe it when I heard that first song. And yeah, that's what they were known for. And then they just segued into... Being quite good, I guess, at writing songs for like a Stifler montage in American Pie. Like it's well, just. Well, I wanted that to ask music. you. Yeah. <laughs> is, is Every Morning a good song? See, I think from my, um, from my research this week, I think they're better at this <laughs> than they were at the harder stuff that they, they kind of made their, you know, independent name on. So I think they actually, fe- that's why I said they kind of bought in. They realized they could do these songs. I don't want to say well, but better than the competition. And there was a lot of competition. Um, You know, the offspring kind of made a very similar change. They were near neighbours around this time. And um, I don't know, Bare Naked Ladies. There was a lot of these kind of like ironic joke bands having mega hits at the time. I have two words for you, Craig. Yeah. 
Uncle Cracker. <laughs> that is a blast from the past. Uncle Cracker. Did you know? Still going? Can I just say, uh, probably. Uh, Sugar Ray, actually, they did a cover of a Brian Eno song, uh, Spinning Away, for the Beach soundtrack in 2000. And it's actually, I really like it. I think it's a really good cover. <laughs> like, uh, they were eclectic, give them that. for sure. Yeah, so I guess... I guess they just saw their opportunity and they went with it. Like, at this point in the 90s, I think if Mark McGrath had, like, 10% less serotonin, he could have ended up being Fred Durst, you know, just riding that wave if he saw an opportunity. Um, but I, I was He had looking, the soul patch, I think. He really so, did. Yeah. And he did say, in fairness to him, he said, if you ever say Sugar Ray sold out, then you were saying Sugar Ray was a credible punk band. I'll let you decide. So, touche, Mark McGrath. You win this round. Wow. <laughs> he does indeed. All right, and winning my top five this week. Um, again, somewhat predictable, but well, you know, couldn't ignore it. So, at number one for me in the sellout corner, take it away, Daniel Craig. Ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. I mean, what a bop it is. Oh, it's The weekend, And it's Can't Feel it's My Face from 2015. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. So yeah, it's essentially, uh, this is the moment where, uh, and I remember, I, I remember writing a review of Beauty Behind the Madness and I remember saying, exactly, I remember saying like, he didn't sell out, like, you know, he bought in, you know. Or, or, like, oh, really? This is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was actually quoting a Seth Rollins promo when he turned heel in WWE. But, um, you know, and I was still on board. Like, I was very much like, I love the early stuff. I think Kiss Land is an underrated album. And I really wanted this to work. Um, you know, listen, we've talked a lot about the weekend, especially recently post Super Bowl. So, you know, I'm, I don't want to go over all ground and just say the same thing over and over again. So what I will do instead is, right, dug out an interview and uh, the New York Times in 2015. So I'm going to read some of that. Um, so this was essentially the announcement. This was the big, like, I think even the headline of the interview is, can the weekend be the biggest pop star in the world? This was him openly stating that he wants to be the biggest pop star in the world. And he's choosing to pivot his sound. You know, he's putting his face front and center, which he had done before. I mean, like, you know, initially the project, of course, was him hiding, you know, behind this thing and who knows what it was. And by the time trilogy kind of gets packaged together by the time kiss line comes out abel tezve is known you know his face is out there so it wasn't this wasn't the coming out party but this was very much the play me on all the radio stations and get me arena gigs party so to quote this from this interview when he began releasing music in 2010 murky dolly-esque r&b sung in an astrally sweet voice vivid with details of life at the sexual and pharmacological extremes tezve chose to be a cipher the only photos of him in circulation were deliberately obscured he didn't do interviews his reticence was an asset fans devoured the music without being distracted by a personality their loyalty was to the songs and in a way to the idea of the weekend. He was happy to stay out of the way. Um, so it goes on to note that in 2011, he started to reveal himself and he was kind of doing support slots for people and maybe getting a taste for it. it. goes on to say that the old weekend was comfortably even enthusiastically numb, the poet laureate of ruinous nights ending in bleary sunrises. His approach to songwriting, both in subject matter and production choices, was characterised by obscurity and darkness. But he began to wonder if there was another way. I felt I had to change who I was, he says. 
His new album, Beauty Behind the Madness, is the end result of a year's worth of molting old habits, a creative upheaval that has begun to teleport him from the margins right to Pop's centre. By taking his old gloomy gestures and repackaging them in ecstatic, radio-friendly arrangements, he has made one of the most sonically ambitious pop albums of the year, full of swaggeringly confident music indebted to the arena-sized ambition of the 80s, from Guns N' Roses to Phil Collins to Michael Jackson. Above it all, it is Michael Jackson and Tezve's crosshairs. These kids, you know, they don't have a Michael Jackson, he says. They don't have a Prince. They don't have a Whitney. Who else is there? Who else can really do it at this point? Then it goes on to then she said that he was chatting with Quincy Jones <laughs> and how Quincy Jones, like, he was like, oh my God, like Quincy Jones knows who I am and this is a big deal for him. And essentially, I guess Quincy Jones had seen him play a show and the kind of piece ends with it where it says, sitting next to Jones, Tezve said he resisted the urge to badger him for old stories. Instead, he recalled it was Jones who had a question for him. What's that one song, that more up-tempo song? He was asking about Can't Feel My Face, which Tezve had performed earlier in the night. Yeah. I used to make music like that, he told Tezve. Sounds good. Which is a great way to end the interview. Now... And start a lawsuit (laughs) from Quincy Jones. (laughs) (laughs) What do we think about The weekend's trajectory since that interview, since that album, since Can't Feel My Face? Because weirdly enough, Can't Feel My Face was big. It was a big hit. But I feel like Blinding Lights has been the bigger one. And it was almost like... It was almost like he stumbled into Blinding Lights. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure it was written for the purposes of being, you know, one of the biggest songs in the world. But like... It, it felt like Can't Feel My Face had more of a campaign and yeah, it almost felt sure. like he was kind of floundering for a while kind of star boy my dear melancholy and it was like is he done I feel like he might be done and then Blinding Lights just fucking makes him go supernova so testament to plugging end, away the, giving him what he wanted he's a trier um, I, I don't know man I mean like it, I, I do find it's the biggest cliche in the book you know the, the weekend's early material was better but like if you go back to like House of Balloons like it's so good like, yeah. It's so sharp. It's so mysterious. It's so alluring. It's the promise of something. And ultimately what we got and what we have, I'm okay with it. You like that last album more than I do. You like it quite a bit, right? Yeah, I, I think, mean, like, do you because think, I think he went you know, back into the murk a bit. His, do you think so? I mean, like, I still feel like it's full on embracing of, you know, branding and tours and everything, which again is fine. I mean, yeah, and like the Super I say, Bowl didn't help my argument from fairness. Um, <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad. It was wasn't fine. that it was bad, but I, it does. I think we talked about how there is still that disconnect of the kind of artist he um, purported to be initially, and also kind of had the most experience in this kind of bedroom artist, creative type that was, you know, throwing away, um, and then trying to be this megastar, and maybe it being slightly out of his reach. Even though he's a he's a huge star, just the way he pulls it off always feels slightly awkward and jarring. Like there is that disconnect of like is this what he really should be doing but i i think it kind of brings the discussion full circle in how this is like textbook selling out but in this day and age it's something that gets like you know adoring thing pieces written about him and people are very much behind his they admire his kind of ambition they think there should be more of that um and yeah again i think you know in an industry that's really kind of stuttering um it's nice to kind of have these big stars with ambition that want to take over the world. And yeah, it's not for me totally. It's for the world, but bravo to him. That's all I can say. All right. That's very magnanimous of you, Craig. I appreciate that. Thank you. And it should be underscored that like, you know, selling out does not automatically equal dreadful unless, of course, you are the Black Eyed Peas, who are terrible. Patreon.com slash no encore. If you feel like throwing us a fiver or more, it's up to you, man. You know, Uh, entirely your decision. Get bonus episodes, 
playlists, <laughs> episode previews, and our undying gratitude. And of course, yeah, like, like bonus episodes in the form of our, our monthly recommends corner, No Ox Chord. Yeah, We've done two of those episodes. Fun. There's another one coming at the end of this month. Uh, what won't be here next week, though, is Craig Fitzpatrick. He's going on holidays. Uh, is it um, sunny Spain, or are you going somewhere more kind of, I don't know, like yeah. American? Alicante. <laughs> It's going to be tropic. Um, I might venture out for a stroll, see if that dog is um, still on good terms with me or still afraid of me. Uh, yeah, I won't be straying far, but, you know, annual leave, turn my brain off, get away from the world for a week. You've earned it, man. And Thanks, uh, we, we will miss you terribly. But luckily, making her return to the show after being here for our lengthy Christmas debate episodes. Yeah. It, it is, of course, the one and only Zara Hedeman. She Ooh. will be joining me next week for, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. I feel like it's probably going to be something Irish for the top five because it is, of course, St. Patrick's Week next week. You know, Whatever it is, sacred... it's going to be box office. <laughs> it always is when you <laughs> stir on the mic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. I'll try and rustle up some patriotism. We'll see what we can do. For now... This episode of No Encore, as with every episode of No Encore, was engineered by the one, the only, the wonderful Sonic Architect, Adam Shanahan. Woo-hoo. Craig Fitzpatrick, Dave Hanready, No Encore. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. At Total Wine and More, we know what pairs perfectly with summer. Go ahead, test us. What goes best with a beach trip? This crisp rosé. A pool party? Try these craft beers. Oh, you're good. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine and More. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.